accelerating to a better future and insight into innovation at Imperial. Hello and welcome to this edition of Accelerating to a Better Future, celebrating the work of the Accelerator Programme at Imperial College London with me, Amanda Carpenter, and my co-host, Richard Templer. Richard, hello again. Hello. Um, I'm looking forward to this one. It's sort of about, about the places where we live. Uh, sort of, you know, often people feel that um, doing something about climate change, it feels like it's all out of reach. And those of us who are lucky enough to have our own homes you know this uh, i hope after we've finished this that um there'll be a kind of recognition that there are things that you can do um and yeah it's an important area as well by the way because as you know i'm sure you know that um, yeah hugely important i mean the whole built environment is an important subject for climate change and, and adaptation and mitigation discussions generally isn't it but today is really interesting because we've kind of got top to toe for buildings really haven't we? we've got two views of how we might make homes um, greener and more accessible in some cases um, and also just better nicer places to live and as we're spending more and more time in our homes at the moment <laughs> we're no longer working from home we're living at work um, it's becoming increasingly important to people so um, I guess I better introduce our guests who are both graduates of the accelerator program and joining us today, we have Arthur Kay, who's the CEO and founder of Skyroom. Arthur, hi. Hi. Thank you very much for having me on today. Brilliant to have you. And Matthew Holloway, who's the CEO and co-founder of Qbot. Matthew, hello. Hey. Thank you for inviting us on. Great. And maybe we should start with you, Matthew, because I think you're a slightly, I'm not allowed to say older, but I mean, perhaps a more long-standing graduate of the Accelerator programme, because you were at Imperial through the programme some time ago. Um, and Qbot is now quite well established as a business, isn't it? Yeah, so I've spent nearly 20 years working for startups, um, or the companies that acquired them. And um, I did a postgrad course, um, a master's at the Royal College of Art and Imperial College, founded a company called Arctica, um, which had a very successful product, um, and went through the incubator at Imperial, and um, ended up going through an early trade sale. And after I'd worked with the acquirer for a couple of years in the in industry, um, I've been working in energy efficiency, you know, the built environment. I've been talking to Tom and Peter, who were the other co-founders of Cubot, and they spotted this opportunity um, for insulating floors. Um, and that's where Cubot came about um, in 2012-2013. So you were already running a business when Cubot came along, or you had this this pause um, between between businesses? The previous business had been acquired, so been um, gone through a trade sale, and I'd worked with the acquirer for about two years. Um, was looking for a new challenge and um, yeah was talking to Tom and Peter and um, it sounded like a pretty crazy idea but um, I was looking for a new challenge and yeah yeah it seemed like a, a good one to get started with. I didn't know quite how difficult it would be at that point of course um, and a lot has evolved along that journey. Yeah I'm unpacking looking for a new challenge to meaning I don't really like working for someone else I like working for myself running startups and being the boss because you're clearly really good at it. So Qbot it's it, I'm, it's not Legoland this Qbot is it this is a very different kind of Qbot this is Qbot for buildings Te what does it do what is it? Yeah I mean interestingly I think um, I think uh, Legoland started using the name about six months after we did um, but um, Qbot's goal is to make it easier to retrofit our buildings so we provide um, tools to contractors and the idea is to make their jobs simpler, make it easier for them to retrofit buildings with insulation. 
Um, why do we do that? Well, insulation is um, not very sexy. It's not, um, it's, you know, it's not um, maybe the first thing that we think of um, when it comes to energy efficiency. We might think of electric cars. But actually, heating our homes is the biggest um, source of CO2 emissions in the UK. And if in the UK, there's a really kind of interesting challenge because we've got some of Europe's oldest stock and least efficient stock. So actually our price per unit of energy is some of the lowest in Europe, but we have the highest bills because our buildings are so inefficient. So if we're going to meet the Climate Act um, and address climate change, we have to upgrade the thermal efficiency um, of our buildings and um, improve the fabric. And um, we can obviously um, install kind of more efficient boilers, but if you, if you like, um, if you've got a leaky bucket, it doesn't matter how efficiently you pour water into that leaky bucket, you'll still have wet feet at the end of the day. And so th this is kind of Qbot's goal is to make it easier to upgrade um, those homes and make them uh, more uh, thermally efficient. So giving us drier, warmer feet, yes. but you're doing that particularly, and, and the feet bit is important, you know, I sound facetious, but it's important, isn't it? Because you're not looking at putting insulation into lofts, are you? Which is where we always think about putting it. Mm. You're actually putting it um, into the bit that most of us probably wouldn't even have thought was a source of heat loss, which is the floor. So a surprising amount of um, energy is lost through the floor. And we kind of think that heat rises, but of course, it's actually far more complicated than that. Heat follows the easiest path out. And in the case of the floor, um, you have a cold ground below, no insulation, but also you have a channel through which air and ventilation comes up through the floor and drives the heat loss through the rest of the building. So we found on average, it's, a, it's, it's nearly a fifth of a heating bill for an older home is, is due to the suspended floor. And as much as a third of the drafts of the whole home come from the floor. So if you compare that to double glazing, um, it's you know, three, you know, something like three times more energy and a, and a couple of times more drafts than actually come from a single glazed window, um, you know, compared to compared to the floor. So it's it's actually a significant um, problem. But what is it that you're doing to stop the problem? Because I mean, presumably you can't put new floors in all of those buildings. And when you say older buildings, are you talking about Victorian housing stock? Are you talking about you know 1920s housing stock? Is this where is the major bit of the problem? In, in terms of the buildings that you're looking at? Well, one of the challenges is with the built environment is there is quite poor quality information about the existing buildings. So um, so the buildings that we um, we upgrade, are some of them are a couple of hundred years old, but some of them were built as recently as a few years ago. Um, our idea um, was that we could use a remotely operated device, a little robot, that could crawl around in these tight spaces and apply insulation. Uh, why that is particularly um, you know, useful and beneficial to the building owner is that traditionally you have to remove the floor, which of course means you've got to remove furniture, fittings, everything else. And then you have to fit insulation by hand between uneven joists. And you have to do so with less than a millimetre gap. And you have to tape every seam to do it incredibly well to, to get a good result at the end of the day. So it's hard, it's disruptive, and it's expensive to do well. And so our solution was to use a robot that we could insert through a small opening, that would deploy and then spray insulation in situ to the underside of the floor, getting the job done in a fraction of the time and without any of the cost and hassle of the traditional methods. I have to, I have to say to you, to Amanda, that I can I, I absolutely distinctly remember this being pitched and me thinking, um, yeah, I, I, I would I would I would buy this service because you know, I'm <laughs> I'm in a Victorian home, 
uh, I know damn well that the air bricks are, you know, leaking heat out of my house. And what stops me from doing this is that, you know, you just look, you just do, do, do the thought experiment yourself. Walk around the ground floor of your home and imagine all the things that are heavy and, you know, or, you know, valuable to you and you have to move it all and have somebody galumphing around, lifting up floorboards, you know, putting in slabs of insulation um, and hoping that it's all going to go well. <laughs> so the idea of having a little, little small gap lifted up in your floorboards or even externally and having this robot go underneath and spray insulation on had a lot of attractions. And I actually think that a lot of the retrofit issues are to do with the amount of inconvenience it creates for the for the, the homeowner or the building owner. It's just, you know, it's it's people don't do stuff because they just go, mm, yeah, that, all that disruption, or maybe I'll go on a holiday. But that yeah, was, of course, before <laughs> COVID. But nevertheless, you know. The, the, it's the, just the, not the, worth the hassle, is it? No. But, but I'm really surprised by something you've just said, you've, Matthew, because you just said more recent, newer buildings. And surely we've had really good regulation about the quality of building and the requirement for insulation and an environmental, you know, requirement on our modern buildings for some time now. So, so how recent is recent in your scenario for buildings that might need retrofitting? So um, the building regs, um, I think, changed about, I think it was about 2007, 2008. So... So, you know, energy efficiency, insulation, you know, the, the, requ the current requirements haven't been around for that long. Um, and if you consider there's something like 27 million buildings, the vast majority of them were built before that date. But the other problem is, is that there is quite poor quality control. And this was, uh, you know, the robot and everything else kind of, you know, sounded like a fun bit of, you know, with Cubot. But my previous experience in the building industry showed me that quality is very hard to measure. So um, in the case of Arctica, sometimes we get a phone call from a customer who's saying, we've got your product. And we'd be like, that's strange. I've never heard of you before. And you find out that a contractor had literally put an empty box with our logo inside, you know, in, in the building and got away with it because you couldn't actually um, measure um, that and you couldn't actually show that work. And so, the, the, you know, if you're putting insulation into a cavity under a floor in a wall and no one sees your work, what is the motivation for doing a good job. Um, there isn't. And if you can get away with doing a bad job, you know, why not? So so kind of taking that kind of forward, one of the reasons why we do new buildings is sometimes the contractors forget to put the insulation in that they're supposed to. And therefore they, we have to go back and retrofit those new buildings because they've not been done to the today's spec. And, and it all goes back to this problem with quality and being able to measure quality. And so in, in Qbot's case, although we, we're quite well known for the robotic system, the technology that we've developed and probably, you know, our, our product is as much about quality control as it is the robot. And we have systems now, which if you're a client, you can log into the website and you can watch a video of the robot. You can see all of the, everything that happens to the building recorded. So it is completely accountable. Um, and that then motivates the installer to do a good job or you give them a kick <laughs> and, and hopefully they will be motivated in the future. You know, as Matthew said, some of this is incredibly boring. People, you know, this is not what you want to spend your money on. But it, it cannot be emphasised how important it is, not just for climate change, which it is important for, but also for health and things like that. You know, a, a well-constructed building that doesn't cost as much in energy is just a better place to live. But the thing that's really... I'm going to be slightly political now. No, I'm actually going to be quite political now. Go for it. 
you know, there, there's there've been huge cutbacks um, within within um, your your local authority, which mean that people who would in the past have done a lot of the checking up of you know your, the building works, making sure that they were done properly, has has become you know they, they they've been eviscerated. The austerity has just killed off much of this. I don't know what you I don't want to use the word policing, Matthew, but whatever you you call it, that the, the you know making the assurance part, um, and you cannot have um, a climate act without somebody going out there to make sure that things are actually done properly. So I think the government is going to have to really, really think hard, long and hard about how it makes sure that those things that we can do are actually done properly. Yeah, and housing um, stock is so important in that, isn't it, generally? Hmm. Sorry, Matthew, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, I was, I was going to say, you know, I, I agree completely. It's, it's quite difficult to actually inspect a building. It's quite time-consuming. Um, so it's not always done, um, or it's not always just done as well as it can be. You know, what I'm quite pleased to see is that the, the current scheme that's um, been announced recently for the Greenhouse Grant is encouraging quality, but it's quite short-term in its nature. And the construction industry needs to train up, you know, something like it's hundreds of thousands of people. With the, with the current people who are skilled to do this, it will take nearly 2,000 years for us to upgrade all of our buildings. Okay, so we won't meet the 2050 target, we won't meet the 30 target, it's 2,000 years. Is, is So we have to train up um, and invest in hundreds of thousands of people um, and kind of reskill the construction industry. And so we need actually um, some long-term planning and thinking to do that. Otherwise, companies like Cubot won't invest in doing that if they're... If, if they can't see that there is, um, you know, a long-term plan, and so that is what, um, you know, I would encourage any of the uh, politicians who may or may not be listening to this podcast to, to think about. They all listen, Matthew. They're, they're on tenterhooks, mate. They are absolutely. Uh, Arthur, you're kind of coming at it from a completely different perspective. So you've got the luxury of starting afresh, haven't you? Because your vision is not to go under the floors; it's to go onto the roofs with Skyroom. And presumably you're starting your buildings with the, the buildings that you're planning, the homes you're planning to build are going to be of the highest quality in spec in terms of environmental fit out and, and, and interior and exteriors, I guess. No, of course. And before diving into Skyrim, I just want to kind of echo a bit of what Matthew was saying. And, you know, it's not always the most obvious place where people, particularly kind of those at the more activist end of the, the climate struggle are, but it's an unbelievably important um, challenge that Matthew and Kubot are tackling. And to the point around, it just reminded me of a, a book I've just started called The Good Ancestor, which is around that kind of much, much longer term thinking around how you can start planning out for not you know, years or even decades, but hundreds or thousands of years. I'm not going to be able to pronounce the surname, but by Roman Krijanaric, um, The Good Ancestor. And it is a, a very good read and about that kind of much, much longer term thinking. Can we so talk about books? Know. Let's talk about books as well as buildings. <laughs> I get really excited if we can talk about books. Exactly. Tell, go on, tell everybody what you're doing though, because it is just such a fantastic vision that you've got. And, and you know, really it's so exciting, some of the things that you're planning at Skyrim. Yeah, so Skyrim's got a fair bit of overlap again with what, what Matthew's working on in terms of it's looking at how we can uh, retrofit and enhance the city that already exists, rather than I think a lot of people always assume that we have to knock things down and start again because we've made such a hash of it historically. And we agree with Matthew that that's not the case. So our really simple concept is around how we can deliver affordable homes that are sustainable and also really lovely places to live, beautiful homes in which to live. 
and our particular focus is around delivering homes for key workers. And the way we've gone about that is by thinking it through from a first principles approach, by stripping back the economics of housing. And this is probably a very boring subject for listeners as well, but I'll, I'll scamper through it. But from a very, very high level, if you're thinking of buying a home in a city like Manchester or Leeds or London, um, we always think of it as the headline, we have a housing crisis. But actually, if you drill down into the economics of it, almost all of the cost of the house is not actually the house and the architecture, the design and the materials. Almost all of it is in the land. And so and in London, that's as high as 80% in most boroughs. And so our kind of key insight in looking at this from a first principles approach is actually challenging that contention. We don't have a housing crisis. We've got a cost of land crisis. And that only really exists in the centre of certain cities. And so the way, the way we've gone about trying to tackle that is instead of saying, let's build cheaper houses, which is how most developers or most house builders approach it, we've started to think, how do we buy land in great places where people want to live, but at 10 times less than one would normally be able to do so? And the way that we approach that, and this is, again, with the support from Climate Kick, literally in our first year, I think, Richard, was um, looking at it from the, from the air above our heads. So London and cities like it all around the world have been built over a long period of time at relatively low density. But now with new buildings coming forward, those density plans need to change dramatically to you know, contain the growth of cities. And really crudely, you either go up or out. And so our contention is that we need to try and increase the density of those cities. But the way to do so isn't necessarily always to knock down buildings and build skyscrapers. We think there's this idea of what we refer to as incremental density. So adding new stories or increasing infill sites and a story here and there to try and increase the density of the city, but without destroying what's already there. And so our business, Skyrim, what we do is we install precision manufactured homes in the airspace of our existing buildings. So we work with some enormous landlords in London, some of the great estates, local councils, housing associations, and FTSE of 100 companies. And we build homes off-sites in factories, and that means that they can be built to a whole bunch of space standards, design standards, energy efficiency standards, material standards, and with very, very little waste, et cetera. And then bring them to site and then install them on the tops of existing buildings. A very easy sentence to say, um, and there's a lot of complexity <laughs> that we can unpack around that. So here we are, we're about um, to Lego, aren't we? So you've got a kit home and you're <laughs> exactly. sticking it on top of a, a tower block, in a sense. Exactly. Well, typically it's lower density and we're looking at maybe kind of a building that may be between three and seven stories and adding between two and five stories as a kind of a rule of thumb. So it's adding... Okay, adding... so you're putting homes on top of homes. So you're building flat, almost like flats, but on top yeah. of a, a non-residential block. Uh, it can be residential, non-residential, and even we're working on some projects which are historically storage or light industrial use. And again, mm -hmm. as, as policies change around these sorts of elements, it's trying to find ways that you can retain some of that heritage in the city. So often manufacturing, for example, which is something I'm, I've always been very interested in, is not affordable in London and therefore it gets kicked out to the provinces somewhere. And again, trying to retain some of those use classes in the central cities. I mean, I have to ask you, have you built any yet or is it all at the planning stage? Have they actually physically up somewhere? We've got our first uh, 15 or so in planning at the moment and then a couple of hundred in the pipeline. Uh, oh, so we should have um, 
so in short, we our first few should be built at some point towards the back end of next year. Where Great are you? News, by the way, it is. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's just so exciting. I'm just really intrigued to this because I live in a Canadian kit home that came over from Canada on the back of a lorry and was unloaded out of the container and put up in the space of about a week. So in terms of the frame, so are you assembling these off site and then lowering them to place, or are they coming in as kits that you then build on site from? already assembled panels as it were yeah great question amanda and already well ahead of uh, even most architects who aren't that clear on what modular entails so yeah you have broadly have um what's known as panelized or volumetric so it either comes as like an ikea set as you say and then you assemble it on site or it comes pre-assembled almost entirely and then you create it in position the short answer is it depends on the site so mm-hmm. a big amount of we you know the initial concept was that these would all be volumetric almost coming as finished rooms and then be created into position as we're coming to the coalface with a number of projects, there are a number of technicalities around things like lifting and permits and road closures, all of which mean that you butt again up against, I'm sure, as, as you found as well, Matthew, you know, the reality of, uh, of then delivering this you know, cool concept and then how it um, kind of comes up against it. So we've designed it so it can be delivered in both ways. Our preference, however, is for volumetric. And that's really because we want to try and minimise disruption to existing residents because obviously these are... Um, buildings which are by definition occupied so they've got either people living in them or people working in them and so from our perspective a huge um, piece of our offering as we work with different partners and clients is around trying to minimize this that disruption because if this was going to be done traditionally you'd end up on-site building for several years you know hammering away causing disruption you know living under scaffolding etc and the key thing that we're trying to do is to build these off-site, which means you can install it very, very quickly. So bring that from years down to weeks and sometimes even days on-site for actually delivering these new homes. There's another kind of aspect of this as well, which, which um, again, was one of the things that attracted me to when, when, you, when you came to us. And actually, Matthew's mentioned it as well. I, I kind of say it's to do with precision. Um, and very early on, when we were starting the climate kickoff group of us, we're talking about buildings and we're talking about the difference between craft and engineering and that you know we really felt quite strongly that you know because our because of the, the age of our housing stock and the conditions i mean the social and historical conditions they were made and they're they, they are craft homes and our uh you know our, our buildings have not moved on in general that that much so the idea of being able to be precise so you can stop leaks and you know make energy efficient buildings seem to us to be incredibly important is, is that a part of kind of the approach that and do you find both of you being drawn to that approach to solve the problems that you know you sort of set yourselves yes yeah, certainly from from our sector that's a, a huge piece of it to try and get that standardization and precision in the in the manufacturing process which means that it can be then scaled up i mean the reality again is that um you know the the in Britain, the what's known as MMC, modern methods of construction industry, is still a long way behind the marketing that goes alongside it. And mm-hmm. so, when you know that we we don't have our own factory, we work with a number of different suppliers, primarily in the north of England. And you know, there's a still a long way to go for that to be up to the quality of probably, you know, Amanda, your home and your Canadian home, or you know, a lot of the homes built in Japan or in in Germany, who are who are certainly. Um, you know, many many miles ahead of us from where we are here in Britain at the moment. But the bright, you know, on the bright side, um, the government is really looking to invest and fund a lot of modern methods of construction um, built homes. And in fact, in a number of new procurement frameworks, that is now the a requirement for it to be proved that you couldn't do it in that way. 
So it's almost a default um, towards it uh, rather than historically it was a weird uh, extra thing to add on. If you, yeah, if it was you, a deep, just sort of like, oh, I don't know, mate, that'll cost you extra type of response. A lot of, a lot of sucking of teeth and scratching heads, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's also, it makes me think as well about things that you were saying, Matthew, about the need for so many people to be trained. And, you know, in, in some ways, I, my, my feeling is I'll bring it on. Isn't the whole point that, you know, what, what, what were the unemployment figures today? It was some ghastly, you know, in, in the hundreds of thousands it's increased by, you know, so we've got, and we've got young people, you know, graduating from school without jobs. And, and you know, here's a great, I hope, a great way of get, for them to get involved with shaping the future in a really practical and pragmatic way. Have you, have you been doing anything like that? Have you been taking we, on younger people to, to work with Cuba? So we, um, we engage, um, you know, part of our business model um, is, a, is a social kind of impact business model. So we work with um, local authorities to create regional businesses that then deliver in that area. Um, and, you know, that is part of our kind of metrics and social impact, you know, that we work, we work to do. I mean, it also makes good business sense. But kind of taking, you know, if you look at the construction industry, traditionally you have skilled um, crafts um, people and, you know, they are delivering a trade, um, whether it be um, whatever it might be. And that, um, unfortunately, there's a bit of a misconception, though, with the kind of maybe the general public that actually it's not about skill. It's actually, it's, it, you know, everyone who works in industry is unskilled. It's just about labor. And that's not the case at all. But, but one of the problems is, is that the number of people who want to be craftspeople um, moving forward, it, it, there aren't enough of them. Um, and there are not enough people being trained in those traditional skills. And so one of the outcomes of that is that we need to find new ways of working. For example, off-site or modular or prefabricated buildings, as Arthur was talking about. Um, in Qbot's case, we have um, people who are in their 50s and 60s who used to be, say, a plasterer that physically can't do that job anymore, who can now practice their craft through a gamepad. Oh. And, then, and then we have, because moving a gamepad in many ways is no different to moving <laughs> a crown, right? You know, it's skill. It's a skill yeah. um, craft. And similarly, um, you know, at the other end of the scale, we have... Um, younger the team um, or our partners who work at our partners who've been attracted into the industry as a career path because it isn't just getting messy it's they see it as a technology um a, you know a route to using technology a route of kind of gaining skills and they therefore um you, you know engage for that reason um so i think it works at both ends that's fascinating actually i really i didn't know that that's really interesting but isn't that interesting about all of the graduates we've spoken to, Richard, over this series, is that there's this inbuilt entrepreneurial way of looking at the world from the other way, the other side, you know, bottom up or from a queer angle or from a, from a you know, from, from inside out. It's, it, it's never sort of a straightforward, I think if you just thought in straight lines, you wouldn't be an entrepreneur, you wouldn't be a creator in the way that, that many of our guests have been and that you just see, perhaps see things differently. And, and I think that that's, you know, that, that goes with, with, with employing people too. It's creating different and new opportunities. And boy, do we need them. I mean, I think the stats around unemployment, you were just saying, I think we're up to 1.5 million people. And we do need people to be retrained. And, you know, my turn to be political. Don't let's retrain the ballerinas 
and the orchestra players. Let's retrain the people who actually have have not possibly had the opportunity to have a training in the first place. So who've perhaps been in in some of those manual labour jobs or those unskilled jobs where they didn't get the opportunity and they could move into a whole new range of green manufacturing jobs, which we really, really need. Arthur, I want to ask you, how are your buildings green? Are they green because they're super efficient in terms of insulation? Or have you got some of those other built environment um, green aspects such as, you know, air source heating or different ways of, of heating buildings? And I'm thinking of Bedsed, that fabulous um, green housing development down in, in South London. You know, are you able to employ those sorts of technologies or is it just too complicated on top of a building? No, good question. Uh, we are able to install and, and we do indeed deploy all sorts of different kind of widgets and bits and pieces which can make um, overall incremental differences to it. So even adding things like air source heat pumps and all sorts of glazings and all the rest of it does make a difference. However, the two big things that make a, a serious difference in terms of uh, kind of whole life emissions from a, from a building, and particularly in terms of how a building is used after it's built, um, are around where a building's built and how a building's built. So it's not just, I mean, I think there's a big piece in terms of what's already been built, how do you make that better? But the, the really big differences are where we build. And so as a kind of a really high level rule of thumb with it, if you're able to, and it's quite counterintuitive a lot of these things as well. Again, to your, um, you know, Amanda, to your kind of book comment earlier, I'd recommend people read a great book by Ed Glazier called The Triumph of the City. Uh, which um, has got a great chapter in it called Green Tops. Or oh, no, it's talking. It's, it's an. He's an American. He's a Harvard economist, an American guy. He's talking about New York, and there's nothing greener than um, brown tops, I think, or something like that. And it's talking all about how actually where you build your house is makes fundamental difference in terms of it. And as a rule of thumb, in the UK, if you're going to live out either in suburbs, or suburban, or rural environments, you're rough. Um, ton of CO2 emissions per person or around 12 tons of CO2 per person and that you can make incremental differences by doing sensible things like driving less and not flying and all those sorts of things but if you were to live in the centre of a city again centre of Edinburgh or Glasgow or London or Brighton your CO2 emissions come right down and in London at the moment it's roughly between four and a half and five and a half tons of CO2 emissions per person and that's you're halving your emissions by living in a dense urban environment by not than not and that seems really weird because a lot of my again my friends who are more at the kind of uh, you know, passionate about nature and about the environment side of things feel almost emotionally that they need to be within nature in order to, and experience nature in order to be green and that is almost exactly the opposite actually living in a <laughs> in a, a tower block in Croydon is probably you know, twice as, as green than living in a nice rural idyll in Bristol, or wherever it happens to be. Why? So, is that because you're not commuting, you're not travelling, or is it because you're just using up less space, you know, than someone who was perhaps living in a suburban house with a big garden? What, 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 how do you bring your emissions down? Yeah, so it's three or four different things. The, the big one is um, transport, so it's around how okay. you move around the city, and again, it's moving, you know, almost even, I've got a, um, there's a, a quote I really like, which is that the sign of a prosperous society is not one where the poor drive is where the rich use public transport. And it's this idea that actually even, you know, you know, bankers earning a million pounds a year take the tube from Notting Hill to Canary Wharf kind of thing, because that's the most efficient way to get there. So it's the, it's that change of idea that if you're living in these, in these dense cities, you're usually walking, cycling or getting public transport to work, even if you're very mm. prosperous. So that's the, that's a big one. Another one is that yes, yeah, space standards are typically smaller. So you're living, typically live, even if you're a London plan compliant flats, you're living in a, small um denser place 
And then there are benefits in terms of things like urban heat island effects and similar that mean that you can you, you don't have as need as much um, insulation living in denser places. And then the other one is around supply chains. So supply chains often end up in cities. So you're not and or, or hubs hub and spokes close to cities rather than again having to drive to your um, you know Tesco megastore um, on the outskirts of Swindon or wherever it happens to be. Amanda, we we've in previous podcasts we've been talking on and off about systems and making systemic changes and i think that um your home and where you live are network you know they that gets connected umbilically to all these different things um and and that is incredibly important when when it comes to calculating what your impact is not only actually for climate change but also on on, on biological ecosystems, you know, so if you start to build in areas that, um, you know, a, 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 where wildlife is currently living, you're, you're transposing them from where they were living to somewhere else. So there's, it, 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 you know, I think as Arthur said, sometimes it's really counterintuitive and people's emotive reactions to what is best for the environment turn out to not quite be correct. So sometimes we have to make some really quite difficult decisions, but based on rational arguments, based on, on actually measuring things and you know, really understanding how things, things work. And I think that um, one of the things that I, I really like to get across to people who might be listening, including politicians, because they should listen to this, is that, you know, you making a home energy efficient which i guess is really what we're all after we want to make them energy efficient um, that's good for you as an individual but actually it's good for us as a society as well because it, as we drive towards renewables the less energy we're using the more spare capacity there is to do the other things so we, you know that we are no, no man or woman is an island uh, you know, and this is this is the proof of it. The way you decide to live your life in your home has impacts well beyond humans, well beyond you and your family. Yeah, and cities are a great example of that, aren't they? Because as you say, Arthur, they're really interconnected, and there's the interconnectivity of where we live and work. But I guess that raises two questions in my mind. And the first is, you know, you talk a lot about key workers and and wanting to build, um, you know. For, for particularly now, given where we are with our relationship with key workers. I like to call them essential workers, actually, being married to one. Um, but um, do they want to live in the homes that you're building? Do they want to be as close to their place of work as, as being able to, you know, just walk downstairs and walk across the street? Or do they want to escape if they've been right at the bloody end of a hospital all day? Yeah, no, I think... I mean, great. bloody in the sense of blood yeah. rather than <laughs> yeah. the other sort of bloody. No swearing on the podcast. Exactly. So the proposal is not that people, a nurse would live above a hospital. It's more that there's this idea that's emerging, um, you know, it was first proposed by um, Richard Rogers in the 1990s and then more recently and more snappily, and he called it the compact city model, and more snappily by the mayor of Paris called the 15-minute city. And the idea there is that you want to be able to access your key and basic services within a 15-minute journey on foot or by bike. And so... What we're, we're not saying that all key workers need to live, you know, you know, in the school kind of thing. What we're saying is that at the moment, just about 54% of London's key workers 
can't afford to live in a city that they literally give their lives to, to support. That at the moment, the average key worker is spending over 60% of their income on their rent, and that puts them well into the realms of housing poverty. And understandably, it's incredibly expensive for any government to give big pay rises to key workers. So, you know, you know giving a you know, you know, 1%, 2% increase to the NHS is in the billions of pounds, and that's a sunk cost forever into the future. So you can't go back on that. And so understandably that there's a reticence to do that. But it's trying to, un, what we're interested in is underpinning the point that actually the quality of life is a really, really important indicator. And that's underpinned by a good and decent home and where that is and how that's built and the beauty of it is really, really important. And so we try and approach it by saying, you know, not every key worker needs to live here. It's more saying that this needs to be an option and it needs to be an option that's afford, like genuinely affordable to them and that's going to significantly increase their quality of life. And so projects we've got working at now are within you know, 10 minute walk of um, Trafalgar Square, within a 15 minute walk of UCL, within a 10 minute walk of Thomas's Hospital, within a, another one in 20 minute walk of Guy's Hospital. So it's trying to say, can we find these big um, hubs of where you know, thousands or tens of thousands of key workers go to work every day, where we can provide you know, between ten, tens and hundreds of homes um, around them for that. Homes to buy, they're not homes to rent. Different options, yeah. So we, we okay. work with registered providers who are able to rent them at London Living Rent to, to key workers or then homes to buy that key workers exclusively. We market to them exclusively and they have access to as well. Yeah, and I guess my other question, and this might be a bit left of field, is that as a result of the pandemic, we've just seen the exodus from the city. So we've seen huge amounts of city stock, primarily offices, but also retail space being emptied. And people who predict futures around office um, occupations, office occupancy rather, are saying that actually people are not going to be coming back in the same way. So what we're going to get is a lot of empty city centre housing and potential housing stock, but also building stock. Is there a way of utilising that under your model or is it only that you can put those those homes on top of buildings? I'm just thinking about, you know, 20 foot um, office block, 20 storey office block that may only be occupied in the first 10 storeys and then you've got 10 empty storeys. Is there a way that we can utilise that differently in our cities? Yeah, definitely. So there are lots of, lots of companies at the moment who do things yeah, like, like kind of, um, it's called office to residential conversions and it's, there's a permitted development right to allow people to do that, which is converting different spaces where they'd be life industrial office previously and into, into housing. So that's a, well, a lot of those are really poor though, aren't they? They're, yeah, they they're converted a, to a really poor standard quite often. Incredibly mixed standard. Some can be um, so bad you wouldn't even believe they could be allowed to be delivered in the UK and some are uh, kind of normal sensible homes so it's a real range um, and it's not something that our model is particularly interested in and again our thesis around key workers which again was developed around the, you know we launched it just at the back end of the us coming out of the climate program so I think Richard you were you were um, I sent you a copy of the edition when we published it in September 2018 um, and the idea was around that it's because the thesis around kind of remote working has always been there, it just hasn't really cottoned on. And I think a lot of people are saying about the pandemic, it doesn't come up with new ideas, it just accelerates existing trends. And so our idea around key workers is particularly exciting for us is that for a, for a hospital to, to function, you need to have doctors and nurses and you know, other people who work in hospitals going physically to the hospital to make that hospital run and function. And so it's not as much a optional add-in as if you're a knowledge worker and can sit, sit in... Um, the middle of nowhere and do your work and and kind of uh, you know, telecommute or whatever it's called these days. I have to say though that just today there was um, a, an article, an interview 
with David Byrne of, of Talking Heads. And um, I, I was really struck by this one quote, which I just can't resist quoting back to, to, to everybody. It says, and right now, people are saying they're never going back to the office. Okay, so it's going to just be screens from now on? God save us. And I think that he's, you know... If I think take... people will go back to the office, they won't they? But they'll go back differently. They won't go back to do what a lot of us are doing at home, which is sitting in front of a screen. They'll go back to connect, to be part of a hub, to have yeah, I, I, meetings, I, to collaborate. I, I agree. I, I, I think <clears> the nature of humans means that we've learned that we don't need all the hassle, that we do need the human contact. Yeah, mm. yeah. But we probably won't need all of the space. And I guess that's what I was driving at. If we yeah. don't need all of the space, is there going to be a lot of redundant physical space in big cities that that we should be repurposing? And obviously it doesn't fit quite into your model, Arthur, but it fits into that wider model and discussion around the built environment, doesn't it? I, I actually think that you'll see a little bit of a reversal of the trend. And, and the reason for that is that not every, that everyone needs to be in the office nine to five, Monday to Friday. But actually, a lot of companies are mainly working remotely at the moment are trading off that face-to-face equity that their teams have built up over a period of time and needs to be replenished periodically. So what you will see is um, offices, um, rather than being used nine to five by the same people in the same way, becoming more flexible working spaces whereby maybe a team will come together intensely for a week. Maybe the office will include accommodation, which they'll live in, for a week, they'll work together, and then they'll go back to their um, homes and work remotely for a couple of weeks. So I, I think you will see um, more creative ways of working like that. But I think actually face-to-face work is actually really, really um, important. And from Cubot's perspective, um, you know, we've seen some of the challenges that it's uh, uh, created. And I don't just mean because we do something physical, but I mean, I mean with the office, um, you know, people who primarily were working in the office. You need to be able to bring people together and there's nothing more efficient than being face to face. No substitute for it. No substitute at all. So there was also one other thing I just wanted to pick up on as well. Um, for me, um, the climate kick kind of accelerator, what, what attracted me to it was that you used that customer discovery model. So in following that program, I spoke to something like 250 customers and stakeholders. And I did that before we developed any technology. You know, we spent our time trying to prove whether there was a commercial model or not. And I would like to think of myself as customer-led, not technology-led. Um, and why I think that's important is that we need to give people what they want. And in the case of climate change, kind of bring it back to that, this is, this is really difficult. Most of the impact of climate change is really hard for us to comprehend. And we're kind of programmed to think about what we're having for dinner, maybe lunch tomorrow. But next week, you know, maybe we'll go on holiday, but we, we, we're just not programmed in a way to make long-term decisions that will have an impact over a long period of time. And so we need to find ways of giving people what they want. So in the case of, um, you know, Arthur, you know, a place to live in the centre of the city, which is nice, um, you know, a place in which you want to live in the centre of the city, um, which is cheap to run. And in our case, you know, we try and give people what they want, which is you know, warm feet, lower energy bills. Um, and to do so without any hassle to, to stop them um, and as inexpensively as possible. So, you know, and if you can, if you can warm, if you can have a warm, cozy home without any hassle, why wouldn't you? And so this, this kind of aspect of design and, and what people want, I think is really, really, really key. And is one of the things that, you know, kind of taking myself back to the um, accelerator program, uh, seven years, I think it is now, is one of the things that attracted me to that. Well, I'm, I'm very proud that you said all those 
all those things and slightly flattered. <laughs> and, and not I, even prompted either. No script involved. <laughs> <laughs> Your payments coming through the post. <laughs> 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 I think I think I think that um, there is something um, about what's happening to us now. I don't just mean COVID. I mean just the general sense of we're going to have to change um, that permeates discussions um, in a way that it didn't when we started off with the, with the Climate Kick program, but now does permeate discussions, um, tells me that we are going to have to learn how to go through, I don't know whether it's a step in evolution, Matthew, but you know, a, a step where we actually do learn how to, how to think beyond um, the next dinner. Um, and, and, you know, Arthur was talking about the book he's reading at the moment. It's thinking about, it's thinking about the equity that you're, you're providing for your children and grandchildren. And I think that you can make it quite personal um, because ultimately most of us do go on to have kids and uh, like Jim have grandchildren as well. Right. So, you know, there, there, there's, there are people staring at you. In fact, I, I will say that I had a, I won't say who it was because they, they might be embarrassed, but it was a, a, a CEO of a very large organization um, was a meeting before this one. And I asked him why he was um, intending to do the things that he's going to do with our new center. And he just said to me, well, I've got kids. And uh, when I go home, how am I meant to feel about not doing anything about this? So I think the, 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 the secret the, the, the tool that will make us grow up and evolve a bit is our children. And then, you know, long may that be the case. Yeah. And it rose right back to your good ancestor, doesn't it, really? You know, thinking long term in a short term world. I guess, you know, <clears throat> we could talk about this all day. We probably have to pull it to a close. But I would say that alongside that need to do something for our our children and our grandchildren is we need to cultivate and support our entrepreneurs and our visionaries. And that's, you know, and that's why it's so fantastic to be able to have this, these conversations with, with the students who come through and the graduates who come through the accelerator program, because without you guys seeing the world from a different perspective and then making it happen, you know, we'd all be in a colder, certainly a colder, I think, but also a sadder place. So it's, you know, it's a huge thank you to you for not only what you're doing and the people you're inspiring, but for joining us on the podcast today. Um, Matthew and Arthur, it's been really interesting to talk to you. And, and, and can I come on site, please, Arthur, and have a look at one of your hands? <laughs> As you can tell, I'm quite interested. Um, and it would be great. <laughs> I'll be invited to the, the launch of the, of the first, first few. Yeah, I'm about to, my daughter's about to become a key worker. So, you know, I'm surrounded by them, um, you know, impoverished medic. Um, thank you both so much for joining us. Um, really terrific to meet you and, and just a fascinating conversation, Richard, as always, um, with graduates of the Accelerator programme, I would say. Yeah, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've been listening to an episode of Accelerating to a Better Future. A huge thank you to our guests and to you, our listeners. And you can catch other episodes of this podcast on the Grantham Institute website or via your favourite podcast app. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and the team at Imperial College London.